Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Exodus 32, 1-6 Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. I'm going to skip down a little bit, but you know the story and that Moses then is on Mount Sinai receiving the law and he comes back to find the scene that is described here. And so down in verse 21, then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. There are several lies in Aaron's version of the story. But of course the big lie, the obvious lie, is that this golden calf, he says, just emerged from out of the fire. He says, they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. We see in this earlier passage, he took from their hand, he fashioned it. You know, it reminded me of the passage in Isaiah which describes in great detail the carving of the idol. Here Aaron is apparently uh, pretty handy with the uh, graving tools. It says he made a molten calf. And it's Aaron who says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so Aaron is clearly lying to Moses. But of course we have to ask, is he also deceiving himself? You know, we see the same thing in the idol maker in Isaiah who fashions the idol. And he seems to forget he's the one who made it. And there is this externalization and then this reification of the human invention. This is just sort of what we do in society. We do it with money. We do it with culture. We do it with the nation state. 
our tendency is the same crude tendency that we see in Israel. It's easy to see, I think, when somebody else is doing it, but when we're doing it, maybe it's more difficult, say, with money and culture. We need to understand these are human projections. We may think we are no longer subject to the same sort of deception. You know, after all, we moderns, we see the lie, don't we? We understand, oh, the gods are human inventions. We live in a modern scientific age. And secular culture has provided us this insight. I'm being ironic here, in case you're missing it. The world, we might say, is disenchanted. And we now know better than to assign life and agency to what has no life. And what I'm saying is, no, I don't think we really know better, do we? And even the disenchantment of the world, you know, the idea that the world, we've kind of run out the spirits, the religion, with modernity. I'm afraid this may be on the order of Jesus' depiction of emptying out of one unclean spirit only to leave a vacuum that is then occupied by a multiple of seven. The disenchantments of modernity are a force so potent as to blind its adherents to their enchanting role in animating and calling into existence what has no existence of its own. That is, the secular or modern are propped up, I think, by the same sort of blindness that we see in the idol maker to the animating force of human perception. Culture doesn't do anything. People do things. It is easy enough, I think, to demonstrate, first of all, the factual error of modernity. You know, that we say, oh, in this modern age, we no longer believe in witches and the occult. I'll come back to this, but I think this is just untrue. But I think the more difficult thing to reveal is the trick from reifying out of nothing an entity like the secular, like the modern, with almost godlike powers of determination. That is, the myth of modernity might be approached from two directions. We can say, well, first of all, it's just factually wrong. Equating secularity with the occlusion of the spiritual, whatever we might mean by that. And then the oxymoronic manner in which the animating spirits are actually traded for an animate culture. And this latter is hard to see. It's hidden in plain sight as the language of secular and modern. We fall into a kind of reification. It just appeared from out of the fire. This cultural reification tends to empty the world of human agency. Historical causality. You know, think here of Aaron and the golden calf. You know, it just appeared. It came out of nowhere. And of course, we know, oh no, he made it. We can historically trace it. And that's true of any human invention. It has an ideology. It has a genealogy. And to suggest the modern just arose as a kind of unique epic, unlike any other. Oh, it's like it emerged out of the fire sort of thing. And the story can be told in any number of ways. You know, oh Copernicus, 
He's the one who moved man from out of the center. Or Descartes discovered the foundation of reason. Newton dispelled the occult with a kind of mechanical understanding. Don't the laws of nature now explain, determine, and create everything? And hasn't modern science really eliminated the need for God? And as a result, we moderns now know there are no ghosts in the machine. We can trust in reason. We can trust in science and progress. And in the modern age, people no longer believe in magic. That is that the spirits have been dispelled. We're no longer superstitious. The gods have died. Nature is subjugated. Instrumental reason, mechanistic materialism, modern science now rule. Oh yeah, there's some backward people. You know those people over, over there. Those people in the east. Or those people in Africa. Or those people in dot, dot, dot. Maybe down in Florida. But for the rest of us, the world has been deanimated a kind of new form of human individual we might think has arisen. The modern person. The old foundations. You know, this was actually Descartes. He said, well, we need to just wipe out all the old foundations. The world is forever changed. And we moderns, we're marching boldly forward into the future, knowing that progress is an inevitable force unleashed by modern reason and science. And so there's a clean break with the past as a new age, unlike any that preceded it, has arisen. Now, what may not occur to this adherent of the modern myth is the work of religious myth is now performed by the secular myth. The world maybe have been emptied of one form of animate power, but now law, culture, progress are the new animating force. And of course, not so new, but what I'm suggesting, we're still dealing with the same force that brought that golden calf out of the fire, that made an idol into something animate. And to imagine a rupture has occurred and a new age has dawned is to be blind to history and how culture always takes flight from its social moorings, from its invention, in the projection of human agents. This blindness is illustrated all around us. It's certainly illustrated in capitalism. That is, we do with money, I think, what Aaron did with the golden calf. It seems to kind of take on a life of its own, of kind of divine value. Eugene McCare has written a book on this. He calls it The Enchantments of Mammon. And his book describes how capitalism became the religion of modernity. This, I think, is the idolatry that threatens. Rather than disenchantment, modernity is simply one more misenchantment. And far from being an agent of disenchantment, Capitalism has been a regime of enchantment, repression, a displacement, and renaming of our intrinsic and inveterate longing for divinity. That is, mammon has replaced God, even though many of us put on our money and recognize in God we trust. Oh, really? 
According to David Brooks, acquisitiveness stems from a kind of sacramental longing, a desire to enter a magical realm in which all is harmony, happiness, and contentment. If we could just get enough money. Or as historian Stephen Fraser puts it, in the stampede for consumer goods slumbers a sacramental quest for transcendence. Reveries of what might be. Thomas Carlyle speaking of 1840s industrial England, he talked about invisible enchantments which left owners and workers alike spellbound by the gospel of mammonism, in which money possessed and bestowed miraculous facilities. And of course, this is what Karl Marx is talking about. And Engels, when they write Das Kapital, in the Communist Manifesto, it says, as like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld, he is called up by his spells. Marx writes of the fetishism of commodities and of the attribution of human or supernatural qualities invested in manufactured goods. And even Max Weber, who talks about capitalism creating a kind of disenchantment, he writes that many old gods ascend from their graves, avatars of the laws of the market, animated by the spirits of the gospel of mammonism. Capitalism, Walter Benjamin writes, informs us, is a cult with its own ontology, its own morals and ritual practices, who quote, its spirit speaks from the ornamentation of banknotes. Now we might think that this is kind of hyperbole. And McCarr says, oh, I'm not speaking hyperbolically. But the enchantments he compares to a world animated by spirits and deities. That is, what Aaron does with his golden calf, I think we do with capital. As he explains, capitalism is its own sort of cult, with its own liturgical codes, its own high priests, the bankers, or those who have mastered the arcane art of the deal. Why such a person might be so important, we would elect him president. Its sacraments, McCarra says, consist of fetishized commodities and technologies, the material culture of production and consumption. Its moral and liturgical codes are contained in management theory and business journalism. You know, we don't go to college anymore so much for the humanities or the liberal arts, but to learn the art of the deal. Its clerisy is a corporate intelligentsia of economists, executives, managers, and business writers. You know, one time, if you had come into a small town like our little town here and asked, who are the important people in town? Who are the well-educated? They probably would have pointed you to the preacher. But today they'll probably point you to the banker, to the businessman, to those who have the MBA. These are new high priests. So capital is the manna, the pneuma, the soul of the world, reducing the older enlivening spirits with 
one that is more real, energetic, and productive. And the evidence suggests that there's not really been disenchantment in the modern, or really an occlusion of the occult, but in fact it's reinforcement. Not only the enchantments of mammon, but the new age has ushered in crystal healing, energy balancing, chakra yoga, tarot readings, wicca covens, witches and warlocks, ghosts, near-death experiences, psychics, extraterrestrials, and miracles all around. A 2005 Gallup poll found that a third of Americans believe in ghosts, while a YouGov survey in 2015 found that 48% of Americans believe people can possess psychic abilities such as precognition, telepathy, etc. And 43% agree with the statement, ghosts exist. No disenchantment here. The majority of Americans are at least open to the idea of ghosts, of psychic powers, and even of the idea of communicating with the dead. And this then supports the larger point, modernity itself is a kind of myth. Modernity is the myth. It's the master paradigm. Let me close with a couple of verses. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 to 6. And this is the issue in Corinth of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's trying to negotiate this. And in 8, 4 to 6, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. That is, in some versions it may say, the idol is nothing. It amounts to nothing. And we know there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Jesus Christ is a kind of demythologizing. In Christ, we can say, the idol is nothing. And I think this is the function, at least in part, of what salvation is. We're enabled to name the idols, to recognize the obscuring, you know, that Aaron does. Oh, it just emerged from the fire. Oh, culture did it. Oh, science arose. There is a kind of myth exposed by Christ, the idol, the mystifying effects of the law. Paul in Galatians, he's dealing with false teachers who would do with the law what Aaron does with the golden calf. That is to reify it, make it a reality on the order of an idol. Look at Galatians 3, 24 to 29. And here Paul corrects them. That is the law, the Jewish law. He says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. It has a purpose, but its purpose is found in Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
we're no longer under the law. The job of the tutor is finished. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And of course he's doing this because all we might think our identity is in Jewishness or in Greekness. There is neither slave nor free man. We might think that being a freedman is our identity or being a slave is our identity. Paul's saying no. There is no longer male nor female. And of course he's not obliterating gender, but he's saying this is not a sufficient identity. We might think, well, I'm a man or I'm a woman and that's enough. He says you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so these means of doing identity through the law, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, are undone in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, both Jew and Greek, both male and female, heirs according to the promise. And so he's putting promise, the promise of God before the law. And he's equating an interesting thing, the elemental principles, the idols, the principalities and power, human divisions, you know, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. These inventions no longer have control over you. And Paul equates those Judaizers who want the Galatians to go back to observing the law, circumcision, being Jewish. He equates it with idolatry. Look at chapter 4, verse 8 to 9. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. That is, these people were literally enslaved to idolatry. They were former idol worshippers who are now Christians. And Paul is saying, well, wait a minute. These Judaizers would take you back to your old form of religion. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He's combating this human tendency of idol making. And even the law, the Jewish law, or the Judaizing, false teachers, this can become a kind of idol. And I presume that all that falls short of Paul's exposure, of Christ's exposure, of the animating enchantments of the idol and the law, that we will displace God with subordinate mystical powers, mythical powers. It may be the reification of literal idols. It may be the letter of the law. It may be Jew, Gentile, Japanese, American. You know, you can do this endlessly. Male, female, slave, free. All of these things are of one piece in Paul's estimate with the enslaving elementary principles, with the thrones and the political powers. This is the way our world works. 
And Paul is saying, yes, but we're stepping out of this matrix. We're no longer controlled by the idol making and the idol makers. The human tendency is to construct a counter reality in which the human artisans are blind to their role of manufacture. Whether it's a piece of metal, whether it's some principle, whether it's an ideology, whether it's culture, whether it's capital, or whether it's our own egos. Like Aaron's explanation to Moses, the golden calf, he says, was not shaped by human hands. It just miraculously appeared. It emerged from the fire. And then, of course, because it just naturally appeared, all were forced to worship it. I think modernity, as a final explanation of anything, is made of the same stuff as Aaron's idol. It's not to deny that there is something called modernity, that there's something called secularism. But understand, this is the artifice of human inventors. The deconstruction and exposure of this means of manufacture. You know, how do we break into this matrix? I think this is what Jesus Christ has done. There is an apocalyptic reordering of human understanding. We have now clothed ourselves in Christ and no longer then are captive to the principalities and powers, the idols of this world. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.